welcome to episode 27 of the Brother Cousins podcast. I'm Jared Wells, and I'm joined this week with Brother Cousin Christopher Gerald and then Jason Westbrooks from the Amarillo Congregation. And rather than give you an introduction of Jason, I'm going to allow him to introduce himself, and I just sprung that on him. So, Yes, you did. Well, my name is Jason Westbrooks. Uh, I serve as an elder at the uh, Amarillo Church of Christ. Uh, I've been an elder for a little over two years now. Um, I came into this thing right when COVID started, so that was fun. <laughs> and uh, I, have, um, I have a wife of almost 22 years and three kids. And, uh, you know, what what do you want to know? Do you want to know my interests, uh, my hobbies? Do I like yeah, abs- yeah, walks absolutely. on the beach or <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> zodiac sign, all that good stuff. <laughs> so I mean, you guys know uh, the being a child of the eighties, uh, Star Wars is a is a big thing for me. Um, but uh, obviously, what we're doing here tonight means more to me than anything. So I'm happy to be part of the part of this process tonight. Well, thanks for joining us tonight. Yes. And this will be our second installment of our Bridging Generational Gaps episodes coming up in April or happening in April. And uh, when we got all this going and we were tossing around ideas of who we wanted to get on the podcast, um, you were a name that was brought up and and Christopher and I both kind of jumped on that. We're super excited. Christopher and I attended Amarillo Church of Christ with Jason for a time and had a really good bond while we were there and, and just super excited that you're able to do this with us and really interested to get your perspectives on the topic. Oh, I appreciate and, you having me. I've been looking forward to it and I'm not bitter at all that y'all aren't at Amarillo anymore, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> good. We well, do, we, have, we do miss it. My kids miss it too. Yes. Since we've been back to Plainview, we have tried to get up there as much as we could but we moved here right before all the COVID stuff happened. Right. So that has been limited. Well, that's not easy even when COVID's not a thing. So. Right. Um, so with the bridging generational gaps, we started the previous week's episode with Isaac and Isaiah Springer and took a younger approach and, and asked them some questions and just kind of led them in some discussion and the idea here, and then I really like the way Christopher introduced it in a previous podcast, kind of letting people know what the topic was going to be, really trying to get a view of what the Bible had in mind when it set up the kingdom. And th- if there's one passage that can summarize it, we all go back to Titus 2, getting that Titus 2 mentality, having mentors and protégés, passing on that wisdom and knowledge and utilizing the vigor that's in the youth and, and bridging all of those gaps together in our society, we see something very different. There's a lot of divide all over the place. And one of those areas is between generations. We hear it. Okay. Boomer and yeah, you know, whatever millennial, right. Um, all the time. And there's some, some good nature ribbing that can be had with that, but it generally carries a lot of disrespect. And so with that, we're just going to open this up with the first question we gave to Isaac and Isaiah Springer. What do you wish that other generations, both above and below you, knew about your generation? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I've, 
I thought about this a little bit and I was talking with a brother tonight at church about this question and, you know, what that, what the bridge between generations is. And, and when you think about it, the, the middle generation, if you want to look at it that way, if you kind of, at any given time, you can sort of divide society, I think, into three generations, maybe. Um, and there's obviously, there's gray areas there, but, you know, that middle generation sort of has to be the bridge between the other two. Right. Because we're just, we're less removed from either way from those. Um, what do I want those generations to know about or wish that they'd know about our generation? You know, that I think that, you know, specifically being, um, you know, as we were talking uh, the other day, middle-aged as I am, I am officially middle-aged now. And, you know, just to know that I, I sort of have an understanding, I think, a little bit more as I get older and mature and have more experience I think I have a greater appreciation and understanding of that older generation. Right. Um, but I also, you know, feel like I have a still somewhat of a connection to that younger generation as well. Uh, but partly because I'm raising kids in that, in that generation, I've got uh, my oldest son turns 18 in July. And so it doesn't feel like it's been 25, 26, 27 years since I was in high school. Um, even though it has been that long, it doesn't feel that way. So I feel like, you know, that I guess for the older generation to, to understand it, to know and realize, you know, I'm kind of getting to the point now where I see where you're coming from mm -hmm. and um, in that younger generation, I want to, to look at them and say, Hey, I, I used to be where you are. And I used to think that I had things figured out. And I used to think that, the older generation didn't understand my generation, but now I'm to the point where I realize not only did they understand, but they also had some things figured out that I wish I had really paid attention to and listened to at that time. And I hope, I hope that makes sense as I'm explaining it off the cuff here. I think people listening to this in our age range will get that. Right. Um, I was having a discussion and granted it was with some older elders, um, 60, 70 plus that kept talking about you young guys, you young guys. And while they said that several times, I just kind of stopped to reflect and I said, guys, I'm closer to 40 than I am 20. Yeah. Um, and you know, you talked about that gray area. I thought you were just talking about what our hair is trying to do as right. <laughs> well, uh, my, you know, mine with me, it was uh, the race was on whether it would turn gray or turn loose. And unfortunately it turned loose before it turned gray. So <laughs> Some of us did both at the same time. <laughs> right. Right. And nothing um, wrong yeah. With that. I, I, and I think you're right, Jared. Um, because I think we don't realize how, you know, I know I get to the point where I'm a lot of times I'm not considering the age of the men at our congregation that I'm dealing with. If, if we're, you know, we're dealing with teachers or whatever, and we're talking about a sermon series or someone's sermon and their outline and, a lot of times those age, those age gaps to me, just, they naturally shrink. Mm -hmm. And I, and I feel like, you know, this is just my brother and we're talking about uh, the word of God and the, it's not really occurring to me so much, you know, I'm, I'm this much older than that person. Um, and I really think that's the way it ought to be. 
But I do think there is a sense that, you know, at some point where you look and you realize you have to kind of realize that, okay, that the generation that's under me now, that they are going through things that maybe I didn't go through. Uh, technology is a, is a weird thing. And I was talking to, uh, to Danny Hughes about this tonight. And, you know, the, the technology, the way it has increased over the last, you know, whatever, 100, 200 years or whatever, it, it's kind of been exponential. Absolutely. It it's has. not, it hasn't been a straight line uh, going up. It, it, it increased dramatically. And so the technology that we have now, you know, uh, I'm an IT guy. And if 20 years ago, when I was first getting into the IT game, if I, if I had known there were certain things now, I wouldn't have believed you. The, the technology has even increased that much. Um, you know, even if certain things haven't changed like we think they should, like, you know, cars pretty much stay the same and things, but, but especially with computers, I mean, technology has just really changed. And so I know that the, that younger generation faces things that we haven't faced before, but it, at, at the end of the day, it all comes back to, it's just a different wrapping for what we've all dealt with throughout the history of humankind. Right. Right. So I hope I'm making sense as I'm trying yeah, to. Yeah, I'm tracking with you. I mean, it's it's kind of the concept Solomon discussed. There's nothing new under the sun. Right. You know, human nature is human nature and has been pretty much unchanged. And just the way that the devil will help us, ex- you know, will exploit human nature using the technology available is the, really the thing that changes. Right. And along those lines, and I think I feel what you're talking about. Um, I want my children and their friends to know, especially with the way my memory is, it it doesn't seem like that long ago that I was your age. And I was making the mistakes that you're about to make. (laughs) And I'm, I'm not, I wish I could keep you from making all of them. That's not possible. What I want you to do is, is do what I didn't and learn to, have good role models, number one, which I think I did okay there, but have good people you can turn to and, and not despise the gray head of the elders and right. people you can turn to and, and that know, you know, yes, technology is different and you're going about this life is in a different way, but the problems you face are still the same type of problems of mm-hmm. dealing with the flesh and learning to do the good work. Right. And learning to do church work and and let the, the younger people know, and this is something I'm also trying to do, that they have a perspective being in that group of how their peers interact with technology and how we can utilize that to reach them in a meaningful way and reach others in a meaningful way to spread the gospel. That's true. And you know what you're saying about dealing with your kids and I don't want you to make mistakes. I mean, that we're dealing with that right now in our family. Um, my wife and I, we're, you know, college is very much on the agenda now. And mm-hmm. um, with one of our sons, especially uh, with Grayson, he's a sophomore, but he, you know, he's kind of got ideas more about what he wants to do with his life. And, you know, Becca and I will talk to him and, and he'll, you know, say, well, I want to do this or that. And we'll be like, okay, that's fine, but we want you to consider. And he kind of gets all defensive and he, he starts thinking we're coming at him, you know, and we'll 
and we'll just say, no, we need, no, let's calm down here. The reason we can tell you this is because we've not only made the decisions that you're making now, but we've lived with them for 20 plus years and we know all the ramifications that come from that. So, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, you can make your whatever decision you want, but please don't just discount what we have to say to you as that's mom and dad and they don't know what I'm going through. Right. And uh, in terms of sin and temptation, maybe again, maybe the package is different, but nothing new under the sun. And I think that when, when you can get that younger generation to, and I don't know if it's even possible uh, that younger generation to, to step back and say, you know, maybe that those older guys know what they're talking about a little bit. And I think the only way you accomplish that is by building those relationships. And basically the only way you accomplish anything within the church as a family, you're building relationships. And uh, Jared, you mentioned your kids being able to go to older men. Um, There's a book that I've read uh, a long time ago. And I don't necessarily endorse the book wholeheartedly, but it's called Raising a Modern Day Knight. Um, And there's a lot of good principles of manhood in there. But one of those that it talks about is creating this fraternity of of godly men uh, in the lives of your sons. And of course, we would we would then extend that to a fraternity, not necessarily fraternity, because that would be men, but a, a family, if you will, of godly people, men and women that my kids can go to, uh, even if they won't come to me. Right. Uh, and I've told my kids since they're old enough to understand you can come to me with anything, but we know kids don't always do that. So if you don't go to me, then go to brother so-and-so or go to sister so-and-so. Yep. Um, and building those relationships and that takes time it takes effort it takes intention uh, deliberate intention of building those relationships through not only attending the church assemblies but also fellowship and um, there's no other word for it except building relationships just doing life together exactly and i think you know another ingredient that you didn't mention jason is is being honest and authentic and, or maybe not authentic. Cause that's a buzzword that really kind of gets thrown around a lot. What I meant to say was being vulnerable. You know, you've got a, you've got a young person who's dealing with uh, a particular sin that might be embarrassing or sexual in nature. And if the, if younger people or even anybody, it's not just younger people, are dealing with something that they think that they're going to be um, put out or mocked for, or that no one's going to be able to understand. I think the younger generation knows that they have, that the older generations have dealt with all those struggles, even if they had a different skin and they need a safe place to come and be able to talk about that. And being vulnerable means saying, um, I've had this challenge. I've had that challenge. You know, I've, you know, I've been, you know, addicted to this or that. And opening that gateway to say it is possible to be a good man and have challenges at the same time, you know? Right. For sure. And I think that's, you know, because I think that's what happens is younger people tend to look up at older people, especially older Christians. And that, you know, 
I think of it in terms of when I was growing up, it was the evangelists mm-hmm. that used to come visit our congregations for gospel meetings, you know, and you would look at those men and think, man, they're just, you would put them up on a pedestal. And then later on down the road, you might hear about, well, if this person, this evangelist had this problem or whatever, or maybe it wasn't even a sin problem, but it just, you know, maybe problems in their life that everyone deals with. I just didn't think those guys dealt with it because they're the model Christian. They've got everything figured out. Uh, and letting you know, those younger people know that we don't have it all figured out. In many instances, we're still trying to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, but I think that makes it more real. And to know that um, that the struggle that they're going through isn't uncommon. Right. But rather that we all we all deal with those struggles from from time to time. Yeah. And I think older generations can maybe make a more deliberate effort to be vulnerable and, and, to and to be honest about their faults. You know, when you talk about raising kids, that's one thing that Laura and I have really tried to do with our boys who are eight and 10 and, you know, just walking, but we've, we, when we make a mistake and our kids see us make a mistake, we own it. Mm-hmm. Like we confess it. You know, if, if we act toward them and, or each other in a way that's not appropriate, we confess that fault and we ask for forgiveness. And if you've never asked a nine-year-old for forgiveness for something that you did to him, you need to try it. It can be and pretty humbling. Right? It, it's incredibly humbling. And when you model, you know, how to receive an apology in our house, when someone apologizes, we say, I accept your apology. We don't say, ah, oh, it's okay. Or don't worry about it. We say, I accept your apology. And then we do, you know, do what we can to try to make that right. And I think modeling that for younger people, you know, whenever I see someone who I look up to as a mentor in the faith, confess a fault, and it doesn't even have to be a big one, but just being humble and honest about that, it, it sets an example that I can model then as, as someone who's younger. It's definitely easier to, to open yourself up when you see someone being vulnerable, it's easy to do that in turn. And to, um, I think that's the only way you're going to help someone with a problem like that is to know that there are other people that have experienced it, even though they, they know intellectually, they know that they're not the only ones, but when you're in the moment of a, of a problem like that, it's hard to, to realize that somebody else has dealt with this and, you know, my, my problems are not unique. So, yeah. Do you think it's hard to get that? you know, the generation above us, if you will, I'm not necessarily trying to include y'all in my age group because y'all are Jared, especially is quite a bit younger than me, but, yeah. uh, but uh, do you think it's hard particularly to get those older people to kind of have that attitude and understanding? It can be. Um, you know, I think in terms of what, what would I, what would I think, that a younger person would, would think about me, would they gain more from having that example of that person who appears to, to have it all figured out Would that, would that give them more confidence to know that that's someplace I can be someday. And not that I'm it's necessarily a false idea of who I am, but, but also just a, you know, this is, this is what we do as Christians. We press on and we press for the mark and, and we do improve and we do get better and we become more Christ-like as we go on, hopefully. And so I wonder if the, the idea of 
being vulnerable and, 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 and admitting that, you know, even at this age, I struggle with who I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You know, that can be a challenge because we want to give that younger generation hope. We want them to know that, Hey, things, you know, you can overcome this, but at the same time, you know, it, it gives them also hope to say, Hey, they, they know what it's like. Maybe they still struggle with this issue that I struggle with. You know, Jason, you've been a, you've been a teacher of God's word ever since I've known you. And uh, I think, you know, as, as teachers, as people who are, you know, as men who are active in the congregation, who are involved in leading worship and all that stuff, we feel a tremendous pressure to perform. And, um, the concern maybe I've had in the past is that if I confess a fault, then I will destroy my influence. And, um, and so I I don't know how many times I've, I've heard a great lesson that was convicting at a deep level and thought, you know, I, I probably need to be sitting on the front pew during the invitation song, but then the devil's like, ah, but what, what will people think? And, um, you know, I actually did respond to the invitation some months back. I was, was, I was on a Wednesday afternoon. I was thinking about some ideas about, um, you know, God's word and hearing somebody talk about it. And I just felt this deep conviction. And I knew right then and there, like, I don't care what's preached about on Wednesday, that front, that front pew is mine. Like I knew I had to. And uh, at that point it was, I was so deeply convicted that, Pride was not anywhere involved. I just knew I had right, to. Right. And I think that we need, you know, to see if one of our elders went forward, responded to the invitation for prayer. I wouldn't think ill of him. I would respect that humility and a desire to be as godly as possible. And I think Absolutely. that's probably what we need to project. Absolutely. I've witnessed it. I've, I've seen an elder um, go sit on the front pew and he was just, going through a particular rough patch and, and really wanted to put all that before the congregation and, and have everybody specifically lifting him up in prayer. And it was moving. And I think it was moving for the younger people, younger than myself to, to see that it's, and I think Jason, you, you kind of came back and answered your question as to what we try to, to model. And it's funny. I had a conversation like this with, my kids today, I try to model imperfection striving after the perfect Mm. Um, and and own my faults and let them know when I've made a mistake Mm. and let them see that I'm constantly in the process of searching God's word honestly to figure out how I can be more like Christ. And when we're modeling that idea and it's not always going to come across. And the reason we had the conversation was it was tossed up to us that, and I don't remember exactly what it was, um, but something about how Rachel and I never, you know, y'all, y'all never. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> it's, I mean, if this is what you're seeing, I need to know, do you not see us own our mistakes? And don't we apologize when we, yes, you do. And so, you know, in the heat of a moment that you're not thinking about, that older person and that they struggle with what you struggle with and that they're only human as well and and seeking after a savior. Um, But 
when we have that, then we can turn them back to and say, lean on me as I lean on Christ and let's lean on this together. Right. 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 Well, that's what Paul said. You know, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And not only just, not just follow me in everything that I do, but where you see me following Jesus, you follow me there. Um, not just uh, follow me and hope that I'm following Christ, but right. you, know, you get in the word, you learn it, but that example is there as well. And I think we've kind of approached and maybe even answered this. I'll go ahead and pose the question anyway, for consistency of, between our episodes, how do you wish other generations would connect with you? No, I would just hope that they um, find me to be accessible and that there's not, um, that there's not a gap. And, you know, I say this as a recovering introvert. Um, it's, it's hard. It was hard for me to get out of my shell. And so the whole thing of being accessible has been an issue for me, I think. Yeah. And so I, you know, I want young people to feel like they can come to me. I want old people, older people, I should say, to feel like they could, they can come to me. Um, and that I'm not going to disdain either one because of, of, of their age or experience. Um, it goes back to establishing those relationships. Um, we have a, a young, young man, a family that has been coming to our congregation now for um, a little over a year, getting close to two years now. And they have a, a son that is uh, sort of our boy's age. That we've, we've really got to, to know them and he's been become good friends with our boys and, and turns out we have some common ground. You know, he's a, he's a big star Wars fan. I'm a star Wars fan. And so we talk star Wars, but then we also talk Bible. Mm-hmm. He's learning how to be a teacher and he comes to our teacher trainings and he'll ask me questions about his sermon outline and, and things like that. So you find a way to make connections, um, and, you know, this is, this is a kid who's 17-ish, 18 years old, and um, here I am, just turned 46, but I can make a connection with him, and we can be friends. I consider him my friend mm-hmm. uh, and brother in Christ, but making those connections is, is what it's all about, and I, I, want, I want those young people, and I want the older people to feel that they can they find me accessible, I guess is a long answer to an easy No, that was, that was awesome. Um, and, and something I have appreciated about the two episodes we've done. And if you're listening to this one and you haven't listened to last week's, I encourage you to catch the episode with Isaac and Isaiah Springer. But it, it immediately turned in what I can be doing. Um, and what you mentioned, I immediately thought of James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. And and then skipping down to verse 17, wisdom that is from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And I think that kind of sums up some of what we've talked about. As we approach that middle age or become middle-aged, we, we age out of some of that youthful foolishness and youthful strong-willedness. And, and some of us did it faster than others. I was having a conversation with someone that's about 10 years younger than me um, on Saturday. 
and they were talking about their 20 year old selves. And I'm like, man, that was my 27 year old self. <laughs> Slow learner. Um, and then I'm still learning a lot of these processes, but you know, when I think of this verse, um, and tie that back to the fruits of the spirit, you know, you and Christopher guys that I think about with that, that you always have been in, and I'm about 10 years younger than you guys. And that you were guys I could turn to that had more wisdom than I did, had more understanding than I did, but I could go to with difficulties and with questions and concepts. And, and there are people obviously much older that I can do the same thing with. Um, you know, we talked about that example, what we, as what we want younger people to see in older people. And one thing that has always been encouraging to me is to watch Jay Henderson in a Bible study the man has forgot more about the scriptures than I may ever know. Right. But we get to a passage of scripture and rather than throw an answer out, he'll spin around to the room and go, what does that mean? And then take the answers that are given and start making notes and throw out questions. Well, what about in comparison to this? And he's genuinely working through that process, even though it's probably a passage he's looked at a hundred times, he's still open to, I may not have this perfectly. It's really interesting that you bring up Jay. And I tell this story not to like toot my own horn or anything like that, but I, I preached in Plainview uh, a few months back. And for whatever reason, something in my, my sermon seemed to strike a chord with Jay. And he, he talked to me after he was really interested in, he said, what was your process there? And, and he's like, can I have a copy of your notes? And you got to remember I remember as a little boy in Pampa, Jay Henderson preaching gospel meetings. And, and I just had a, a surreal moment. And I'm like, Jay Henderson is asking me for my sermon notes. What is going on here? But <laughs> that that's him reaching out to that younger generation and admitting that maybe I can still learn something uh, for, you know, whatever process that, that struck a chord with him in the way I presented my sermon, he, he was really interested in that. And so we talked about it and it was a, a very surreal moment to me, but I felt, well, wow, he really, he really tried to reach out and make a connection there and, and wasn't being all prideful of and saying, you know, Oh, I had that figured out a long time ago. No, he was, right. it was pretty, it was a pretty neat experience for me. Uh, yeah. To, and this, to, to have that happen. This idea of approachability is I think reinforced in the scripture, you know, when we, when we need to relate to somebody, we need to know that the person that we're going to talk to gets it and gets us and is not going to respond with shame or a sermon, but that they're just going to like, listen and relate and help And that. I think that concept is described in Hebrews chapter four, when it talks about Jesus in verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And to me, that verse says Jesus is approachable because he gets it. And if we right. are to model Jesus, then we need to take our experiences and rather than let our triumph over some of these issues harden us and make us less relatable, we need to allow our progress be approachable to people who still need strength. 
And so I think that's just one more way to model Christ to others. That's a great point. And that's what makes Jesus the perfect advocate. Uh, The difference between him and us, of course, is he, he, he knew no sin, um, but he still gets it. Even though he knew no sin, he still gets it. I mean, we think we're something because we've passed through time. I experience, but this passage says that Jesus passed through the heavens and he's still relatable. Exactly. You you know, and as you continue in that passage, Christopher, there's a verse there that I have used. Maybe, and I really feel like the last several years I have used that unjustly um, because we're told all things are naked and open in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. But it goes on to say that he is help in time of need. Mm-hmm. And it's a plea for us. God knows you've messed up. And, and that's the other place where Jesus is far superior to us. He already knows that humanity's messed up. He knows how break, broken we are, and he knows specifically how broken I am, but he still wants me to come lay that at his feet. And and to, for me to know that he is absolutely approachable and willing help whenever I need him. And so that's modeled by people that are older than, than we are, than I am in Jay Henderson. And, and Jay is really good about coming to find me after I've spoken. And, you know, I hadn't thought about what you presented there and, and wanting a copy of my notes. And he doesn't do that on every sermon, but there's two things there, the, the constant student and the encouragement yeah, for a younger teacher or, someone that is way less advanced than him. And then I guess there's three because there's the model of him following and being an encouragement to those that are younger. Keep pushing, keep trying. You're doing good work. You have value in what you're doing in the kingdom that I can then turn and model and send to the generation below me. Yeah, Jared, I think being in the middle, we're in this place where, we have enough experience to understand the need for younger people to be encouraged and that we understand we have a responsibility to encourage them and help them. But yet we also look to our elders and our mentors. So we're in the unique position of needing encouragement while we are a source of encouragement for others. Yeah. And that is one of those things that you don't see it until it's already happened. Right. You're, you're, you're on the other side of Titus 2 before you realize what happened. Or at least that's what it has been for me. So what you're, what you're saying there about the, the modeling and the, being the encouraging person as well, you know, I relate that to something that I'm passionate about, which is the teaching in our congregation. And obviously, when I look at some of our, our, our newer and younger teachers, being an experienced teacher, you know, and even though I remember what a horrible experience it was when I first started and how nervous I was, but now, you know, I look at some of these young guys and and I have a whole list of things in my head that think, okay, these are the things that you can work on, but you don't want to be overwhelming in that. And uh, I've, I've had uh, help from a brother in our congregation in approaching our young men And he says, you've got to start with, number one, you've got to start with encouragement and let them know what they did good or did well. 
And in number two, you don't overwhelm them with criticism, regardless of how well-intentioned it is. Um, you give them one thing. You may want to consider this, or you may, this is what I think you should work on. And we've got a, a, a few young guys that really like to listen to that. Um, Tonight was an example. We had a young man who gave a sermon. He did a fantastic job on his outline. And, you know, as we were talking after services, uh, you know, one of the guys said, hey, I, I noticed last time we talked about his transitions. And he said this week he really worked on that. And he mentioned that to him. I, I worked on my transitions. And he said, yeah, you did a great job. And so it, it's having the it's being patient. I think patience is a big key and especially in dealing with the younger generation. And yeah, maybe I have a whole list of, of things about a younger generation that really just get on my nerves, but I can't just come at them with that list. I have to be able to sit down with them and say, listen, I really appreciate these things about you. And I love that you're involved with this and that. And here's one thing that I think that you should work on or could work on. And let me know what you think about that. And let's talk about it. So, yeah, at, at work, you know, it's some leadership training there. We have this, it's called the models called the coaching sandwich. Think about it like an Oreo cookie. They call it the support coach support. So you start with this, the, the encouragement, then you give them one thing. That's the, that's the icing in the middle that they really need the, the thing to work on. And then you follow up with additional support, that little kind of that three layer deal. I found that's a helpful approach in a lot of areas in life, whether it's be with my kids or my staff at work or, you know, at church, you know, trying to help others. I like it. Yeah. And something that the younger generation that we've talked to was this podcast wanted was both some direction and some leash. Um, they want to, and I think we'll find this a lot, or we have found this a lot. There's, people that want to be involved younger than I was that see the need and have the care for souls greater than I did when I was their age. And they need some direction. Um, and, and then they need to be allowed to, to make some controlled mistakes and have people be patient with them and work through those. And in the, you know, it's, it's the same thing in the pulpit, you know, give them help as much as we can and then also encourage them that there was meaning and intent when God set up the church the way he did. And, and they have a lot to offer the congregation. Don't be worried about getting up in the pulpit and looking out in the audience and seeing the Jay Hendersons and the Jason Westbrooks and the Christopher Gerald's people that are really solid teachers and have some depth and some experience and knowledge in God's word but you have perspective, especially if you're a student of the word that you can bring to these people. And it's, it's our testimony of God's word at work in our life. And it has value and meaning. And um, if we can encourage those people in that direction, then I think that is a good way that we can bridge that gap and, and be the bridge in between. Agreed. Yeah. I think sometimes we, um, growing up, you know, we looked at these men ministering the word to the congregation and they did it like, so Jared, you'll, you'll understand this growing up brother, Dwayne Rawson, 
there was one particular sermon I ever, I can see him writing on that green chalkboard with that yellow chalk to this day, rattling off the 12 tribes of Israel and the two half tribes. And, and I was just in awe that he could do that. Right. And so I looked at these men and the bar was set so high for teaching and being able to do that. But at the same time, it was those same you know, men who gave us kids a chance to make some mistakes, those control mistakes that you talked about. And I think it is important that while we do set the bar high, we allow room to grow. And I think what you're saying is that the, the goal is not perfect teaching every service or every assembly, but that we all come together as the body of Christ growing and that every part of the body has a part to play has a valuable role that was ordained by God and teaching doesn't have to be flawless and perfect to do what God wants it to do. Right. Yeah. We fulfill that role of first Corinthians 12 or Ephesians four, right. Of letting the body give itself supply and, and fulfilling God's wisdom. Yep. Cause there, there may be young people in the audience who, who don't care what I say. But if they see one of their peers who's closer to their age stand up and say, I had this challenge, I dealt with this, this is a question I have, that may carry more weight with that younger person than it does hearing it from me. So we need every well, part of the body. That's the great thing about the, the plurality of teachers that we have in our congregations. Right. Um, and not even just a, not even as a generational thing, but there are just certain teachers that you identify with and you know, learn from better than others. Mm-hmm. And, and chances are, you know, when you build a teaching team that's comprised of a good plurality of men and they're all solid teachers, your congregation is just going to be that much more edified because you're going to get something out of every sermon, no matter what, but there's going to be that one special teacher that you look to that just for whatever reason, the way they explain things, the way they get things across, you just connect with them more. And, you know, my oldest son, Jackson, he, he said that one time about uh, Michael McCorkle. He said, every time I listen to him, I just, I understand him so much better than, than many other teachers. And, you know, it's just, that's the way it is for everybody. We all have those teachers that we look at and say, you know, yeah, I, I, that was an edifying sermon, but it didn't hit me the way that it might've hit you. And, that's okay. And that's what we have to, as someone like me, who's passionate about the teaching has, that's a lesson I have to learn. And that's what I had to, uh, what I try to get across to our teachers uh, in Amarillo is listen, we have these teacher trainings and we throw out ideas about presentation and and things like that. And at the end of the day, that's all they are. They're ideas. Um, and what, what works for me may not work for you, and that's okay, because at the end of the day, what we really care about is effort and, and a desire to, to make your teaching the best that it can possibly be, and you do you. I, I don't really like that phrase. <laughs> that's, a, that's an overused phrase, but I, I have used that in our teacher training. So I, I like to use the example of, of Pat Manning and Marlon Cole, men with two completely different preaching styles. Can you imagine Pat saying, you know, you know, I think I want to, I want to try to preach like Marlin and see what that looks like. No, I, I mean, can't even how, how humorous would that be? 
both of those men are extremely edifying preachers, but they, but they do themselves. And so the idea of you do you, even though I don't like that phrase, it, it definitely applies into something like the teaching, teaching service. And I don't want to make this all about, about that uh, soapbox item for me, but it, I'm just using that as an example of, of, of how you can make connections to those other generations. So. Uh, absolutely. And that's another thing, you know, working on some teacher training, generally work with the younger men or the less experienced teachers and we try to give them ideas on presentation and, and what I often don't maybe present as heavily as I should is that all of this is just ideas to try and get me out of the way of the word. I don't want to do anything that distracts from the intent of my message. And outside of that, you need to put yourself into your sermon and that's, what's going to connect with people. For sure. So I'm going to shift gears on you a little bit. As we consider these things and bridging generational gaps, and, and maybe just as we explore differences in mindsets between generations, we're asking the question of every group, what do you think or what do you see as the greatest challenge for the church in the next 10 years? Well, that's a great question. I thought about this question actually more than in the, the others that you sent me, um, because Several things come to mind, but I tell you the thing that's really troubling to me about, if you want to call it the, the religious community, if you will, is that this idea that things just aren't important when it comes to doctrine. And, you know, that obviously that's something that has been in our brotherhood has been a a major concern for a long time, but I think as we go out and we try to evangelize and as we try to, to, to teach the gospel to people, the, the thing that I've seen from a lot of people that I've talked to that are outside the church is, is this idea that the urgency of the scriptures and what they teach beyond the simple message of the gospel, it just doesn't matter. And you see that with, with doctrines like, you know, Calvinism, the, these ideas of, of, of messianic Judaism, where we're combining the, the old Testament and the new Testament law. And, and, and people are, you know, we've heard it for a long time of like, well, we're all on different paths to the same place. And, and I, I don't like to encourage division by any stretch of the imagination. And I think the church has, has made a lot of progress in the areas of this perceptions that we've had of, you know, people always say, Oh, you church of Christ, think you're the only ones going to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've made a lot of strides in, in showing people that that's not the case, but at the end of the day, I just don't think people feel the urgency of the truth like they should. And there, you know, as you look at like the political landscape right now, and the idea, the idea of persecution becomes more real to me as a possibility. Right. Um, you know, that might be, we might be tempted to say that's our greatest challenge, but I think that just falls under this category of people just becoming apathetic to the word of God. 
And I really think that's the challenge that we're going to face in, in the next 10 years is people really is getting people to feel the urgency and not letting what's going on out in the world become more important than what's going on in the church. Right. There was uh, one of our dear brothers in the Lord who made a comment on Facebook about um, Will Smith slapping the dog snot out of Chris Rock on live TV. And his, his statement was basically like, if your main takeaway was not that the jab hurt and shouldn't was in bad taste and that retaliation for words with physical violence is wrong, then you're missing the main point. Because everybody wants to say, who do you support? Do you support Chris Rock or Will Smith? Like, well, they were both dealing in a worldly way that neither, you know, neither one. <laughs> that's that's the takeaway. Neither one right. is reflective of the character and, and of Christ or the behavior of a Christian. Right. So and I'll, it- I'll pass over the question of whether or not it was staged at this point. Um, but you know, my main takeaway from that is like, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about where this is of a small little thing like this all of a sudden consumes the attention of our culture. And for some reason, it's important to us that one person who makes tons of money entertaining slapped another person that makes tons of money entertaining. And it's all designed to distract us from everything else that's going on around us. So is it callous of me to say that my first thought was, Hey, that's going to be meme worthy. (laughs) Oh oh no, because, because everything's meme worthy that happens. Anything that grabs the attention of the, of the culture is, is going to be meme worthy. I've seen some some killers. There's some killer Christian memes. I posted one on Facebook today. It was, I saw that actually. Yeah. Um, So Jason, with what you said, and then I think, what we have between the two episodes so far is a microcosm of the things we've talked about, the gaining and understanding and wisdom, because what we talked about with the Springer boys kind of came back to the difficulty in teaching the gospel and people caring and understanding, especially in, in the direction our society is gone. And the level up from that is it's because we don't feel the urgency. We don't see the need. Um, It really goes back to understanding how we have unity. The world wants to push this idea of unity. And in a a temporal worldly sense, the only way you can do that is to acknowledge cognitive dissonance and say, everything is fine, whatever. Um, As opposed to having unity within Christ that we're all broken human beings and we're redeemed by a savior that was perfect. And now we're all striving towards perfection together and we're led and guided by the spirit and God's word is the only way we're going to establish that. Agreed. And, you know, when you think about unity, I love to think about um, two different examples in the Bible, uh, uh, the tower of Babel and uh, Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts two. Amen. Flashback to the Tower of Babel. What, what does the Bible say was happening there? Well, all humanity, the descendants of Noah and his sons, were there at the plain of Shinar. They build this city. They're all united. God looks down and says, hey, these people, they're, all, they're united. And if you, if you take some of those verses out of context, what God is saying is 
now nothing will be withheld from them. You may come away with that thinking, you know, God might have said, wow, these people, it's like you can accomplish anything you set your mind to. But that's that's what God was worried about. He said, okay, we're going to go down and mess this up, this up. We're going to divide these people. And so what why? I mean, what was so wrong with their unity? Because they weren't united in him. Right. They were united in right. their own, in their own agendas. The Bible and said so to they, make a name for themselves. Right. Exactly. To reach heaven on their own steam, on their own terms. And so he confounds their languages. And that's the, that's the beauty of Acts chapter two, when the apostles start speaking in tongues and everybody hears them in their own language. It's like the reverse of the Tower of Babel. Yep. People start hearing, what are they hearing? They're hearing the, the wonderful words of God. They're hearing the message of the gospel. And it's bringing people together in Christ. And, and that's godly unity. Unity yep. for unity's sake is never good. Well, and, and unless what, it's in Christ. Right. What I have seen and, and what our civilization and societies have shown me is that it is impossible now outside of Christ. We want to divide about everything. Mm-hmm. Pick your topic de jour and we're going to divide about it and we're going to divide vehemently. And, you know, one of the beauties of our podcast and what we've done, Christopher Jeffrey and I have very different ideas on some things, but we gather around the unity that's in the gospel and being redeemed by Christ and being changed in Christ and all striving after that perfect man. And it's brought us to, and I'll circle back to something we've talked about in the podcast already, this idea of the body and what every joint supplies. I'm, I'm weak in areas that Christopher strong and, and it is really evident in a body for you and Amarillo, Christopher and Stillwater, me in plain view as we work within those groups. Um, but we have that, if we unite in Christ and, you know, Peter tells us that he made a people who was no people We're from every generation, every nation, every tongue and, and whatever clan, however you want to divide it down, every economic group are now all in one in the body of Christ. And every part is absolutely necessary. Amen. So pairing off of that, what do you see as the greatest opportunity for the church in the next 10 years? I think we touched on it earlier a little bit. Um, and being an elder of a congregation that's autonomous from other congregations, I have to kind of filter my answer through that, that lens, if you will. Um, And what I see in Amarillo is opportunity. Um, And I I just see opportunity. I see we have a lot of young families. We have so many uh, families that have kids that are in high school and junior high. And then we have so many families that are just getting newborns, three, four, five, six-year-olds. And I think the opportunities are there. Um, and this may sound like I'm answering the other question as a, as a, as a problem, but, you know, I think complacency is our greatest enemy and the, the opportunity we have is to foster our relationships as the family of God. The opportunity is to train up these young 
men and women, these, these kids, boys and girls, these babies, and the opportunity to, to grow our congregation. And as you know, unfortunately, many of those kids are going to grow up and they're going to get jobs and they're going to move away and they're going to get married to someone who's in Houston or Oklahoma or Dallas or, or wherever. But hopefully when they're leaving, they're leaving with uh, a short lifetime within the influence of our congregation that's going to, they're going to then take that wherever they go. And so opportunities for growing as a family of God. I mean, I don't know how to put it any, any, any plainer than that. I mean, we could get into all kinds of specifics, but I just think I don't want it 30 years from now. I don't want the church in Amarillo to consist of the same families that are here now, only we're in our 80s and 90s. And we're just waiting for the last person to die so we can close the doors. Right. That's, and I want, you know, 30 years from now, I want to be the old man that people are laughing at because he says weird things all the time and he can't remember where he left everything. And it's like, okay, when do we let tell Jason he can't take the floor anymore because we just don't know what he's going to say. And I want there to be the people that are there that can, they can step up and I could actually, you know, hopefully recognize and say, I'm going to step down and let these young people do it now because, you know, we've taken advantage of the opportunities that we have. And that's really the strength of an intergenerational mindset is to understand that there's not just one group that has a monopoly on doing the work. But when you build in layer after layer of redundancy, one group training the next, training the next, it's a strength. Yeah. And that's just can't be overstated, the, the, the wisdom in God's design. You know, I grew up going to church in, in Pampa. And, uh, you know, we had elders and deacons growing up. And just in the last several years, uh, we, we've buried, they've buried the 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 last two elders that were elders when I was there as a, as a young man and as a boy. And, you know, I just could never fathom as a young boy, like, what would we do without, you know, what's the church going to do someday when these men die? Well, now they have died and they, they served our congregation in Pampa. And, but guess what? There are still elders in Pampa. There are still deacons in Pampa. And the congregation there is still going strong. Those men are gone now, but they've left a legacy behind. And, you know, hopefully we're dealing with a sort of first generation leadership in Amarillo uh, right now. And hopefully, you know, several generations down the road, leadership has been perpetuated and is still in place. Uh, hopefully when I'm long gone and nobody even remembers my name. I think what you described there, Jason, is what Paul admonishes Timothy to help set in motion in 2 Timothy 2, 2. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And I think that's the mark of a mature congregation, whether it be large or small, is, is that church equipped, able, and engaged in making mature self-replicating disciples like that's the measure of a church whether it be big or small agree 
and, you know, we may say, well, you know, we don't have, you know, this fancy thing or our, our building was, you know, built in the 1940s or, you know, we don't have this or that. But if what you do have is people who make disciples who make disciples, then God is glorified in that. And that's the plan working. And I think that's strangely one of the biggest challenges, though, of the church is the challenge of making disciples who, are, who will then go make other disciples. Exactly. It's way easier said than done. For sure. And, you know, just to justify the reason we're exploring this topic so much, what you said was our opportunity is to bridge these generational gaps and have that succession like Paul told Timothy to do, like we see in other churches where we commit these things, the Titus II mentality, older teach the younger, and that perpetuates itself on down the line. And so doing those things and especially the direction that our society is headed shows something different to the world, the church, you know, and I've said this a few times recently, but we have never had an opportunity like I see coming towards us in my lifetime. Society by and large looked a lot like the morality that we have and everybody just kind of looked like everybody else. But now the love and fellowship that we enjoy, the reaching across and, and embracing everyone, young, old, whatever nationality background, whatever economic background, whatever, just embracing everybody looks different. And we build those bridges and we bring everybody up to the level, to the maturity in Christ that the body is supposed to bring people to is an opportunity, especially as we go out and advance the gospel because it looks different. It draws the question, why do you do what you do? Right. You know, and, Jason, and I think, go ahead, Jason, please. Oh, well, I was just going to say, you know, in talking of opportunity as, as the political landscape of our country changes uh, over the next 10 years, and I think it will even further than it already has, that creates the more darkness there is, the brighter a light shines. And it's going to, you know, I don't necessarily want to use the phrase separate the men from the boys, but it's going to create opportunities to let our light shine in a way that's, that's truly noticeable. And when I say let our light shine, of course, I mean, letting the light of Jesus reflect off of us and shine out to the world. So. Right. I mean, as the, as more and more, um, religious organizations that call themselves churches reject basic teachings, historic teachings of the Christian faith. And I'm not talking about things that are specific to the churches of Christ. I'm talking about stuff that every Christian since century one AD has believed they don't believe anymore. Just the right. fact that you read the Bible and try to say, this is what we're going to do. It's not just a collection of fables. It's actually an authoritative document from God. <laughs> That, that is going to be different and refreshing. And, you know, if anything, you know, people, when they come to a religious faith, they don't want something where there are no rules and anything goes and nothing matters, as you said, Jason. That's like playing tennis without a net. It's interesting that a lot of the religious movements that are gaining some speed tend to come from the Reformed family. That's what I see in my area of the world. There are a lot of guys 
um, and who are leading their families toward reform theology mm-hmm. because it's regimented, it's strict. Things matter, yeah. And uh, the 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 more we try to say yes, things matter, and this is what matters. It's going to make us differentiated and provide great opportunities for people who are seeking truth from God. Absolutely. And I've seen that, I've seen that trend too, just on, you know, just on the sort of the, the YouTube videos that you see that are pervasive in terms of Christian teaching, the, the reformed guys are, they really harp on the Bible. Uh, do they, now, do they get a few things doctrinally incorrect? Uh, you know, we get, that's a different podcast probably, <laughs> but, but I think, I think there is a hunger out there for the truth and despite what the direction our country seems to be going in, uh, I think there's still a, the concept of a, a vocal minority that's behind a lot of that. Right. But, but I also think that regardless of even if it, it's a vocal majority, I still think there are people out there who want to hear the truth. Yearning for the truth. Yep. Yeah. And I think that there's a part about that emphasis on there's a code. There is a, there is a doctrine, a teaching, a standard that matters. And having a community of people, you talked about a fraternity of men, having a tribe of men who help hold each other accountable in a society where that does not hold men accountable to the things of God or for any sort of real honor or virtue. That's going to be an opportunity, in my opinion, especially that's going to appeal to men who love God who have a passion for truth and want to lead their families according to the, the word of God. Being Absolutely. in a place where that kind of stuff matters and as people are accountable to one another is really important. And that's why, you know, in the last three years um, I've had a guys get together at my house called the guys of March, you know, where we celebrate, uh, you know, being a godly man. And I said, guys, you know, come and bring your sons of all ages. So, you know, at these events, we've got, you know, kids who are barely walking and teenagers and little kids, you might have people up on sitting around the campfire and you might have little boys catching crawdads at the Creek, you know, but I want every age together to learn from and form relationships over the years. And I want my sons to have a tribe of men in the body of Christ who will help them become the men they need to be because they, they need more than just me and their mom. They need other people, other brothers and sisters who are mature to teach them. Right. If you don't have an emphasis on cross-generation, cross-generational Christianity, that's not going to happen. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of brings us back full circle to where we started. And I think that's a good place to wrap. Uh, want to say again, Jason, really appreciate you being on. And I think this will probably be something to try and get you on down the road i've got a few topics especially i'd like to pick your brain about um in the podcast i think would be really interesting and edifying for our listeners um i'll open the mic to you and ask if you have oh. any last thoughts that you'd like to, to throw out on this topic or something no I, I think we've we've covered a lot of ground I, I really appreciate the invitation to be with you guys tonight and kind of like what chris was saying to me last night we were talking about it uh a conversation that we've had like this many times before, uh, you know, miss having those conversations with you guys in person, but uh, it's nice to be able to do this at least remotely. And, um, you know, 
thankful for the opportunity. Yes, sir. Thanks for being on, brother. You bet. Um, so again, this was episode two in Bridging Generational Gaps. We will have Van Miller record us or record with us for episode three, and that will actually include all three brother cousins. So be looking for that one next week. Uh, I don't have any special announcements. Christopher, have you got anything? Uh, just remember to like and share. We are so passionate about this podcast. We want it to, to get out and reach as many people as possible and to bless as many men and women as it can. So if, if this has been a blessing to you, we would so appreciate if you would uh, give us a rating wherever you consume podcasts, give us a share on social media, tell someone you love. Uh, we just want to get the message of Christ out to people who need to hear it. All right. Thank you guys for listening. And as we wrap, I'm going to ask Christopher if he would lead us in a prayer. All right, let's pray. Our great father in heaven, we are so grateful for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, we're in awe of the wisdom that you displayed when you knit the body together to be Jew and Gentile, man and woman, old and young, rich and poor, we thank you for the diversity that you put in the body of Christ that fulfills your will. And Lord, as we explore the opportunities and challenges of multi-generational Christianity within your body, we pray that you would help all of us to recognize where we are, appreciate those who have come before us for the wisdom that they've learned, help us also to approach with humility and also understanding those who haven't had as much experience Lord, we ask for your ability to learn from every part of the body of Christ and also to reach out in just the right way to those who need help. Father, we pray that we would all come together to the full stature of Christ as your word commands in the church, and that we would do that in a way that would make the gospel uh, spread through the church and, and help as many souls as possible. And Father, we ask all this through the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks again Amen. for listening. Love you guys.